Hey, thanks for joining me. Um, I'm, I'm one of those people who tends to uh, sort of dive in and give it a go and see how it works and then make changes along the way because if I waited to uh, get this system down perfectly, you'd never be listening to this. So um, thanks for joining me here. I'm going to be going through chapters of B.F. Skinner's uh, Science and Human Behavior, and I'm going to do it chapter by chapter, and I've been thinking about uh, whether or not to interrupt my reading, to maybe add definitions or do it afterwards. But what I'm going to start with, I thought, was to... Uh, start off each chapter referencing or explaining some of the things that Skinner talks about, just in case they're new to you. Now, I, this doesn't mean that I'm going to be able to explain everything that may be new to you, but there are some terms or references that I think, hey, it would be nice to um, have heard it before. You may not remember it when I read it, but at least it won't be your first exposure to uh, something that he brings up. I, I know for me, I when I'm reading, um, and one of the things I, I'm going to be reading this on a Kindle, uh, is that I love being able to go in and get definitions if I need them, or I have my computer handy and I go back and I, I sometimes will look something up if a term or a reference is used that I'm not familiar with. So what I thought I would do, um, and you're really getting in, more probably more of an insight into what was new for me or, or things that I wanted to just make sure I was clear on, um, I'm going to just go through them beforehand. So that's what this little clip is going to be. Um, and then uh, I'm going to start off with this, hoping that my phone doesn't ring and my dog doesn't bark. Uh, but I thought I'd just do it this way, see how you like it, see how I like it, and then, you know, maybe change it along the way. Okay, so I'm going to be reading the first chapter of Science and uh, from Science and Human Behavior, written by B.F. Skinner. It was originally published in 1953. You can actually get a free or very low-cost uh, version of this, from bfskinnerfoundation.org and you can go there and find a copy um, and download it to one of your own devices um, and have a read. Um, one of the, the reason why I'm, I've chosen this book to read, well, it's multi different reasons. One is that it's, it's any book of Skinner's is, is worth reading anything that's going and there's the phone. Hold on a second. <laughs> okay. Well, um, as I get better at this, I'll edit that kind of stuff out or unplug the phone or figure out a way to just be better. But um, so the different reasons that I have for this particular um, book of Skinner's was because I was given permission to do this by the Skinner organization. Um, other other publications of his are uh, the copyright is owned by big publishing houses and I wasn't going to try to go through all the what needed to be done to get um, access to be able to do this. So that's one reason, and th and then the other reason was, of course, anything of Skinner's is is worth reading. <laughs> so um, whether I, you know, it was about behaviorism or or this, um, it's applicable. Um, the other reason is, even though I'm reading this for animal trainers or dog trainers more specifically, 
and this the title of the book is Science and Human Behavior, Skinner went into the lab to study behavior with animals and then took that information and applied it to human behavior and to see whether or not similar um, similar things were true or, or could be found in human behavior that were able to, to be uh, researched in the lab, and, and, and it was the case. The other reason is because what we see in the animal training world is that people are applying common attributes of human behavior to animals, and then it's a question of is it is it realistic either from a, a you know from a scientific pers perspective does it make sense that we apply this that's going on in humans to animals in which case we might say yes it is and in other cases um, it it might not be specifically because of the way that we're thinking about human behavior to begin with so I think it makes sense to look at what Skinner has to say about human behavior and then whether or not we should be applying it to animals at all. Uh, so, all right, so that's why um, I think that this is a, an interesting read. Just some things to, to mention beforehand. Early in the first chapter, uh, Skinner references Francesco Lana. Uh, he's also found as Francesco Lana Terzi. Uh, he was an Italian Jesuit scientist, and he died in 1687. So that's just an, in some interesting perspective there. Skinner does often use the term man um, in its sort of the general way that people often use the term man in writing, and that they are referring not simply to man, the singular gender, but humankind. Sometimes it's capitalized, sometimes it isn't. Um, in this chapter, he does use the term will. For, he introduces the, the, the idea of free will, which I think is important because we go, we go back to that a lot. Um, he also mentions um, Aesop's fables, or a, and, uh, one of Aesop's fables, and um, I'm 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 saying Aesop. It's spelled A E S O P. The way that I learned to hear it, which was Aesop. I've looked it up. You sometimes see it, uh, hear it um, as Aesop. It was um, he he was uh, a, a slave storyteller in ancient Greece uh, at during the period of 620 to 564 BCE. If you're not familiar with Aesop's fables, they are uh, often used to as little morality tales. Um, so if you're not familiar with Aesop's fables, there's lots of them. They were not recorded. Uh, they, were, they were an oral storytelling um, uh, but and were not recorded till approximately 300 years after his death is is what we what we see. But anyway, there's still there's lots of them and they're popular. Um, he does make reference to Copernicus and how Copernicus uh, presented information that was base was different than what was commonly assumed at the time, and that was uh, the idea that the Earth was not the center of our universe and that everything revolved around the earth, but that in fact it was the sun and that the earth revolved around the sun. This was pretty revolutionary um, at the time. 
He does make reference to Darwin, referring to his theory of evolution and natural selection, uh, and also talks about determinism, which um, there's different definitions for it in, in philosophy. Um, all events, even moral ones, are determined by uh, previously existing causes, although sometimes this rules out free will um, because it means that humans cannot act otherwise than they do. Um, it's worth having a look at that term if you're not familiar with it. I know it's one that I have to think about a bunch to sort of wrap my head around. Um, he also brings up uh, totalitarianism um, as a, 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 a the political term, which is a form of government that pre prohibits opposing parties and uh, prohib prohibits individuals from um, contradicting the state. Basically, it's full state control. He also mentions uh, laissez-faire, which is a uh, an attitude or, a, or a, a philosophy of just sort of letting things take their own course and not interfering. Okay, so that was just a few things I wanted to introduce before I get started, um, and I will uh, be recording the uh, the chapter next. I was going to start by reading the table of contents. Section one, the possibility of a science of human behavior. Each section has uh, is broken down into subsections. In section one, there is number one is can science help? And that's what I'll be reading uh, to you today. Number two is a science of behavior. Number three is uh, why organisms behave. In section two, the analysis of behavior. Number four, uh, section within that is number four, reflexes and condition reflexes. Number five, operant behavior. Number six is shaping and maintaining operant behavior. Number seven is operant discrimination. Number eight is the controlling environment. Number nine, deprivation and satiation. Number 10, emotion. 11, aversion, avoidance, anxiety. Number 12 is punishment. 13, function versus aspect. 14, the analysis of complex cases. In section three, the individual as a whole. Number 15 is self-control, in quotations. 16, thinking. 17, private events in a natural science. 18, the self. In section four, the behavior of people in groups. 
And then subsection is number 19 is social behavior, 20 personal control, 21 group control. In section five, controlling agencies, 22 government and law, 23 religion, 24 psychotherapy, 25 economic control, and 26 education. In section six, the control of human behavior, 28 culture and control. Oh no, sorry, that was 27. Let me double check on that. I'm having to read Roman numerals. Um, 27, culture and control. 28, designing a culture. And 29, the problem of control. Chapter one, can science help? The misuse of science. By the middle of the 17th century, it had come to be understood that the world was enclosed in a sea of air, much as the greater part of it was covered by water. A scientist of the period, Francesco Lana, contended that a lighter-than-air ship could float upon the sea, and he suggested how such a ship might be built. He was unable to put his invention to a practical test, but he saw only one reason why it might not work that God will never suffer this invention to take effect because of the many consequences which may disturb the civil government of men. For who sees not that no city can be secure against attack, since our ship may at any time be placed directly over it, and descending down may discharge soldiers. The same would happen to private houses and ships on the sea. For our ship descending out of the air to the sails of sea ships, it may cut their ropes. Yea, without descending by casting grapples, it may overset them, kill their men, burn their ships by artificial fireworks and fireballs. And this they may do not only to ships, but to great buildings, castles, cities, with such security that they which cast these things down from a height out of gunshot cannot on the other side be offended by those below. Lana's reservation was groundless. He had predicted modern airfare in surprisingly accurate detail with its paratroopers, its strafing and bombing. Contrary to his expectation, God has suffered his invention to take effect, and so has man. The story emphasizes the irresponsibility with which science and the products of science have been used. Man's power appears to have increased out of all proportion to his wisdom. He has never been in a better position to build a healthy, happy, and productive world, yet things have perhaps never seemed so black. Two exhausting world wars in a single half-century have given no assurance of a lasting peace. Dreams of progress toward a higher civilization have been shattered by the spectacle of the murder of millions of innocent people. The worst may be still to come. Scientists may not set off a chain reaction to blow the world into eternity, but some of the more plausible prospects are scarcely less disconcerting. In the face of this apparently unnecessary condition, men of goodwill find themselves helpless or afraid to act. Some are the, some are the prey of a profound pessimism. Others strike out blindly in counter-aggression, much of which is directed toward science itself. Torn from its position of prestige, science is decried as a dangerous toy in the hands of children who do not understand it. 
the conspicuous feature of any period is likely to be blamed for its troubles, and in the 20th century, science must play the scapegoat. But the attack is not entirely without justification. Science has developed unevenly. By seizing upon the easier problems first, it has extended our control of inanimate nature without preparing for the serious social problems which follow. The technologies based upon science are disturbing. Isolated groups of relatively stable people are brought into contact with each other and lose their equilibrium. Industries spring up for which the life of a community may be unprepared, while others vanish, leaving millions unfit for productive work. The application of science prevents famines and plagues and lowers death rates only to populate the earth beyond the reach of established systems of cultural or governmental control. Science has made war more terrible and more destructive. Much of this has not been done deliberately, but it has been done. And since scientists are necessarily men of some intelligence, they might have been expected to be alert to these consequences. It is not surprising to encounter the proposal that science should be abandoned, at least for the time being. This solution appeals to those who are fitted by temperament to other ways of life. Some relief might be obtained if we could divert mankind into a revival of the arts or religion or even of that petty quarreling which we now look back upon as a life of peace. Such a program resembles the decision of the citizens of Samuel Butler's Airworn, where the instruments and products of science were put into museums as vestiges of a stage in the evolution of human culture which did not survive. But not everyone is willing to defend a position of stubborn not knowing. There is no virtue in ignorance for its own sake. Unfortunately, we cannot stand still. To bring scientific research to an end would mean a return to famine and pestilence and the exhausting labors of a slave culture. Science as a corrective. Another solution is more appealing to the modern mind. It may not be science which is wrong, but only its application. The methods of science have been enormously successful wherever they have been tried. Let us then apply them to human affairs. We need not retreat in those sectors where science has already advanced. It is necessary only to bring our understanding of human nature up to the same point. Indeed, this may be our only hope. If we can observe human behavior carefully from an objective point of view and come to understand it for what it is, we may be able to adopt a more sensible course of action. The need for establishing some such balance is now widely felt, and those who are able to control the direction of science are acting accordingly. It is understood that there is no point in furthering a science of nature unless it includes a sizable science of human nature, because only in that case will the results be wisely used. It is possible that science has come to the rescue and that order will eventually be achieved in the field of human affairs. The threat to freedom. There is one difficulty, however. The application of science to human behavior is not so simple as it seems. Most of those who advocate it are simply looking for the facts. To them, science is little more than careful observation. They want to evaluate human behavior as it really is rather than as it appears to be through ignorance or prejudice, and then to make effective decisions and move on rapidly to a happier world. But the way in which science has been applied in other fields shows that something more is involved. Science is not concerned just with 
getting the facts, after which one may act with greater wisdom in an unscientific fashion. Science supplies its own wisdom. It leads to a new conception of a subject matter, a new way of thinking about that part of the world to which it has addressed itself. If we are to enjoy the advantages of science in the field of human affairs, we must be prepared to adopt the working model of behavior to which a science will inevitably lead. But very few of those who advocate the application of scientific method to current problems are willing to go that far. Science is more than the mere description of events as they occur. It is an attempt to discover order, to show that certain events stand in lawful relations to other events. No practical technology can be based upon science until such relations have been discovered. But order is not only possible, is not only a possible end product. It is a working assumption which must be adopted at the very start. We cannot apply the methods of science to a subject matter which is assumed to move about capriciously. Science not only describes, it predicts. It deals not only with the past, but with the future. Nor is prediction the last word. To the extent that relevant conditions can be altered or otherwise controlled, the future can be controlled. If we are to use the methods of science in the field of human affairs, we must assume that behavior is lawful and determined. We must expect to discover that what a man does is the result of specifiable conditions, and that once these conditions have been discovered, we can anticipate and to some extent determine his actions. This possibility is offensive to many people. It is opposed to a tradition of long-standing which regards man as a free agent, whose behavior is the product, not of a specifiable antecedent conditions, but of spontaneous interchanges of course. Prevailing philosophies of human nature recognize an internal will, which has the power of interfering with causal relationships and which makes the prediction and control of behavior impossible. To suggest that we abandon this view is to threaten many cherished beliefs, to undermine what appears to be a stimulating and productive conception of human nature. The alternative point of view insists upon recognizing coercive forces in human conduct which we may prefer to disregard. It challenges our aspirations, either worldly or otherworldly. Regardless of how much we stand to gain from supposing that human behavior is the proper subject matter of a science, no one who is a product of Western civilization can do so without a struggle. We simply do not want such a science. Conflicts of this sort are not unknown in the history of science. When Aesop's lion was shown a painting in which a man was depicted killing a lion, he, comment, he commented contemptuously, the artist was obviously a man. Primitive beliefs about man and his place in nature are usually flattering. It has been the unfortunate responsibility of science to paint more realistic pictures. The Copernican theory of the solar system displaced man from his preeminent position at the center of things. Today we accept this theory without emotion, but originally it met with enormous resistance. Darwin challenged a practice of segregation in which man set himself firmly apart from the animals, and the bitter struggle which arose is not yet ended. But though Darwin put man in his biological place, he did not deny him a possible position as master. Special faculties or a special capacity for spontaneous creative action might have emerged in the process of evolution. When that distinction is now questioned, a new threat arises. 
there are many ways of hedging on the theoretical issue. It may be insisted that a science of human behavior is impossible, that behavior has certain essential features which forever keep it beyond the pale of science. But although this argument may dissuade many people from further inquiry, it is not likely to have any effect upon those who are willing to try and see. Another objection frequently offered is that science is appropriate up to a certain point, but that there must always remain an area in which one can act only on faith or with respect to a value judgment. Science may tell us how to deal with human behavior, but just what is to be done must be decided in an essentially non-scientific way. Or it may be argued that there is another kind of science which is compatible with doctrines of personal freedom. For example, the social sciences are sometimes said to be fundamentally different from the natural science and not concerned with the same kinds of lawfulness. Prediction and control may be forsworn in favor of interpretation or some other species of understanding. But the kinds of intellectual activities exemplified by value judgments or by intuition or interpretation have never been set forth clearly, nor have they yet shown any capacity to work a change in our present predicament. The practical issue. Our current practices do not represent any well-defined theoretical position. They are, in fact, thoroughly confused. At times we appear to regard a man's behavior as spontaneous and responsible. At other times we recognize that inner determination is at least not complete, that the individual is not always to be held to account. We have not been able to reject the slowly accumulating evidence that circumstances beyond the individual are relevant. We sometimes exonerate a man by pointing to extenuating circumstances. We no longer blame the uneducated for their ignorance or call the unemployed lazy. We no longer hold children wholly accountable for their delinquencies. Ignorance of the law is no longer wholly inexcusable. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The insane have long since been cleared of responsibility for their condition, and the kinds of neurotic or psychotic behavior to which we now apply this extenuation are multiplying but we have not gone all the way. We regard the common man as the product of his environment, yet we reserve the right to give personal credit to great men for their achievements. At the same time, we take a certain delight in proving that part of the output of even such men is due to the influence of other men or to some trivial circumstance in their personal history. We want to believe that right-minded men are moved by valid principles, even though we are willing to regard wrong-minded men as victims of erroneous erroneous propaganda. Backward peoples may be the fault of a poor culture, but we want to regard the elite as something more than the product of a good culture. Though we observe that Muslim children in general become Muslims, while Christian children in general become Christians, we are not willing to accept an accident of birth as a basis for belief. We dismiss those who disagree with us as victims of ignorance, but we regard the promotion of our own religious beliefs as something more than the arrangement of a particular environment. All of this suggests that we are in transition. We have not wholly abandoned the traditional philosophy of human nature. At the same time, we are far from adopting a scientific point of view without reservation. We have accepted the assumption of determinism in part, yet we allow our sympathies, our first allegiances, and our personal aspiration to rise to the defense of the traditional view. 
we are currently engaged in a sort of patchwork in which new methods are assembled in accordance with traditional theories. If this were a theoretical issue only, we would have no cause for alarm. But theories affect practices. A scientific conception of human behavior dictates one practice, a, a philosophy of personal freedom another. Confusion in theory means confusion in practice. The present unhappy condition of the world may in large measure be traced to our vacillation. The principal issues in dispute between nations, both in peaceful assembly and on the battlefield, are intimately concerned with the problem of human freedom and control. Totalitarianism or democracy, the state or the individual, planned society or laissez-faire, the impression of cultures upon alien peoples, economic determinism, individual in initiative, propaganda, education, ideological warfare, all concern the fundamental nature of human behavior. We shall almost certainly remain ineffective in solving these problems until we adopt a consistent point of view. We cannot really evaluate the issue until we understand the alternatives. The traditional view of human nature in Western culture is well known. The conception of a free, responsible individual is embedded in our language and pervades our practices, codes, and beliefs. Given an example of human behavior, most people can describe it immediately in terms of such a conception. The practice is so natural that it is seldom examined. A scientific formulation, on the other hand, is new and strange. Very few people have any notion of the extent to which a science of human behavior is indeed possible. In what way can the behavior of the individual or of groups of individuals be predicted and controlled? What are laws of behavior like? What overall conception of the human organism as a behaving system emerges? It is only when we have answered these questions, at least in the preliminary fashion, that we may consider the implications of a science of human behavior with respect to either a theory of human nature or the management of human affairs. End of chapter one. Uh, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. And I will uh, be working on getting chapter two ready for you. 